0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So this is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love, in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phidilis and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me, and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus.
1: Thanks, Franny. Okay, Father, thank you for uh, your words. It says in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped. And we pray that you'd equip us through this word in your name. Amen. I can remember a time that shook me as a Christian. It was my second year of university. I was in Leeds in the north of England and I was living with four non-Christians. And I'd plucked up the courage to invite them to the Christian Union carol service. And they'd all accepted and I was delighted. Uh, the carol service was really well done, straightforward, some good carols, a nice, simple talk about the meaning of Christmas and Jesus coming to be the Savior of the world. All good. Then afterwards, we were getting our mince pies and mulled wine, and you know, I had my housemates and a few other friends, and we were chatting, and I was asking them, you know, how did you find the service or, or the concert and all the rest? And so far, so good. And it was all nice. And then one of my, my housemates, Hannah, butted in, and she said, do you know what, Steve? I didn't like it. The man speaking said I was a sinner and needed salvation. All eyes on me. What did I do? I muttered, no, 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 he didn't. (laughs) He had just said that i had invited my non-Christian housemate to an event to hear the message of salvation that is found in Jesus. I'd been praying for these housemates for months. I'd had tried to have conversations about faith. I'd asked them. I'd had a moment of courage. I'd asked them. They'd actually come, all of them. And then there was a moment to take a stand as a Christian that that is the message. And I was a coward. I followed the pattern of Peter by denying Jesus because I'd rather keep the peace and remain popular than counting the cost of being a Jesus follower. And this moment shook me as a Christian because I realised that underneath my church attendance, my leadership in the Christian union, my many activities, my fantastic Christian heritage I had, I was raised in the Christian faith, I called myself a Christian, but underneath it I was a coward. Well, if you're anything like me and you want to grow in courage, you'll be glad we're studying the letter of 2 Timothy for the next four weeks as a part of our vision series written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he's urging Timothy to pick up the baton of sharing the gospel and planting churches. And he's going to say to Timothy, you need courage in the gospel to do this. Paul himself, as he writes the letter, is in prison. If you look at verse 8 there, he says, don't be ashamed about me. He's prisoner. He's in prison. In Rome. in chapter 4, he talks about how he's on trial. And and Paul is convinced he's going to die. He's going to be executed at the trial. And this was around AD 64, and Nero was emperor, and Paul knew that his time, he says, I've finished the race, and my time is done here. And uh, many years earlier, though, as recorded in Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament, Paul had come to a town called Derby and found a mature young disciple named Timothy, who, like me, had great Christian heritage. And we read it in verses 3 to 5. He had a mum called Eunice and a grandmother called Lois who had raised him in the faith, the Jewish faith. Uh, and he'd come to understand the gospel of Jesus and been converted, and and he'd really matured, so Paul takes him along on his missionary journeys, and together they go planting churches and spreading the gospel, and Timothy's like this you know, spiritual son to Paul, and uh, off they go. And we also know from Paul's, this is the second, you might have seen two Timothy, there is a first Timothy, the first letter Paul wrote to him, and in that letter we learn in chapter 4 that Timothy is young. He says, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. And we also learn in chapter 5, 23 of 1 Timothy, he says, you know, take some wine for your frequent illness. It was one of my favourite verses in the Bible. Take wine, yes. Um, But his point is, he's frequently ill. It's not just, you know, he's frequently ill. So he's young, he's frequently ill, and then Paul has to write him a whole letter, and we can see it here, going, don't be ashamed. And you don't write a letter to someone saying, don't be ashamed, unless they are tempted to be ashamed. So Timothy, like you and me, was human, and he was tempted to be a coward. And easy succumbed to succumb to that temptation. So young, frequently ill, prone to timidity. And yet Paul says, you need to pick up the baton of sharing the gospel in a world that's going to be hostile. And in which people will turn their back on you. Did you when Franny read verse 15, and Paul says, you know, all kinds of people would have deserted me in the province of Asia. Lots of people don't stick to it. And that is why the title of this series, which is a series called Courage in the Gospel, the title for my talk is Calling All Cowards. God doesn't call courageous people and says, now I'm going to use you. He calls cowards in his grace makes us courageous and now says, now I can use you. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah. And so Paul, in this chapter one, says, okay, I want, you to, I want to call you a coward. Oh, isn't? I want to call all cowards to be courageous. And he says uh, he's going to do that in three ways. Uh, The first way he's going to say, I want to teach you about what it is to rely on the Holy Spirit, verses 1 to 3 to 7. Then he's going to say, I want you to have a conviction of the gospel of grace that you need to share. And then he's going to uh, uh, tell Timothy to be aware of the cost. That's where we go in the three points. Do keep the, the hand out there. A reliance on the Holy Spirit. So Paul says to Timothy in verse 6, Fan into flames, the gift, you know, it's lying dormant, his gift of, of uh, evangelism. And, and in verse 7, he says this, doesn't he? For, for, God, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self Discipline, and the actual Greek. You know, New Testament was written in Greek. This letter was in Greek, and we've translated it to English. But in Greek, it says God gave us a spirit not of fear. It's more, in fact, and the fear is actually not of cowardice. When you become a believer in Jesus, you repent and believe, and you put your faith in Him for eternal life. You are granted the Holy Spirit, and the spirit you are given is not of fear or cowardice. Instead, it's of power and a spirit of love and self-discipline. Because power without love and self-discipline can be abused. But if it's tailored and tempered and rounded by love and self-discipline, the power becomes beautiful. What did Jesus say to the disciples when he was departing? In chapter one verse, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. And notice this power of the spirit comes back in verse 8. So do not be ashamed to testi- about, of the testimony of, about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel. See it there? By the power of God. Or verse 14, flick over. Guard the good deposit, so stay true to the gospel that's been entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Do you remember that amazing account of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? They just healed a man uh, who had been ill and uh, you know, been paralysed, and the crowd swarmed in amazement. And Peter stands up and says, no, it wasn't us that did the healing. It was the name of Jesus that healed this man. And the religious authorities are suddenly getting jealous, and they're not very pleased, or they're hearing. So they put Peter and John in prison for the night. And the next day, they're called to give an account. It's like, what are you doing in our town, healing people, you know? And uh, we read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, salvation is is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we are saved. The, the response of the religious leaders, when they saw the courage, see that? Filled with the Spirit, what do they see? Courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They're like Timothy. Well, I'm frequently ill. I'm prone to timidity. I'm young. Just unschooled, ordinary people. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Then after some dialogue, the religious leaders command them, well, you're not allowed to speak in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem anymore and threaten them before letting them go. And Peter and John go back to this church in Jerusalem uh, and they have an impromptu prayer and worship night. Okay? And this is what we read. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Spirit. And what is a sign that you're filled with the Spirit? They spoke the word of God boldly. What has changed for Peter? Denying Jesus, like me, to now I'm I'm willing to be put in prison for Jesus. What has changed is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church. Timothy, you feeling the pressure of being a Christian? You want to water down the gospel to make it palatable to your friends? Are you tempted to just drop the baton and go, no, no, I don't mind sort of doing Christian stuff, but don't ask me to actually share this thing. I don't want to pass on this thing. Timothy, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit in you. And God gave you a spirit not of fear, but of power. If you're anything like me, the message today is, it's not about you. Come back to your reliance on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit we were all given when we became believers was not of fear, not of cowardice, but of power. Rely on him. If you're feeling fearful as a Christian, the potential root of that problem is you're trying to do it yourself rather than relying on the Spirit's power in you. Ask, seek the Spirit's power today. He's there for you. He's in you. He's been given to you. He's amongst us. Rely on him. A reliance on the Spirit's power. Secondly, a conviction of the gospel of grace. It's, Paul says to Timothy in verse 8 there, uh, so do not be ashamed to, you know, of the testimony about our Lord. He's got to pass on this gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Uh, but what is vital to see is that Paul doesn't just say to Timothy, don't be ashamed. He tells him why he's not to be ashamed. You know, it's, it's okay, don't do this, but why? And Paul says, well, I'm going to tell you why not to be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul's answer is, don't be ashamed of it. You won't be ashamed of it if you're convinced about it. The reason you're ashamed is because you don't actually, you're not convinced and convicted of it. Once you're convinced and convicted, Timothy, you won't be ashamed. So it's not about drumming up, okay, don't be ashamed. It's like, am I convinced? And go, if I am, I won't be ashamed. And so he gives five stages of the gospel of grace. And I'm going to put them in order. It's not quite how Paul puts them. Paul says, I want to convict you of this amazing gospel. And so he says, let me start by talking about grace in eternity past. Look at that, the, the second part, the last part of... of um, of chapter verse nine, this grace was given us in Christ Jesus. When? Before the beginning of time. Hemingway said that courage is grace under pressure. Well, Paul shows a lot of grace under pressure by reminding us of grace in eternity past. The gospel we believe. That we're saved by, that we proclaim started in eternity past. God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. In other words, God was already thinking and working and drawing us into this amazing story. Timothy, this should bring assurance to your whole life. Because before you were born, in eternity past, God was doing something and He was going to draw you into it. So when you're feeling fearful, remember this huge story that you've been drawn into. That it's not that you've got God, it's that God's got you. And he had you in eternity past. That should give us great assurance. From eternity past, he moves on to the grace that appeared through Christ. So if you look at the beginning of verse 10, but this grace has now been revealed, he says in verse 10, through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus. The grace that started in eternity past, had shadows in God's revelation in the Old Testament, just shadows though, has now been revealed, made manifest. Light has shone. And what was revealed in this gospel, the second part of verse 10, that what Jesus did, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. He destroyed death. That's our gospel. And he brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul says elsewhere, for the wages of sin is death. Death came into our world because of sin. Before sin, there was no death. When sin entered our world, the punishment for sin was death. God had said it to Adam and Eve. Now the scripture talks about three types of death. There's physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. There's spiritual death, the separation of the soul from God. And there's eternal death, the separation of the soul and the body from God forever. Isn't it horrific when we grieve a loved one who dies, especially if that person was young? Physical death is so fearful because it separates us from those we love. But it's not as fearful as spiritual death, which means you're cut off from God, the source of life and joy and love and all good things. And that even pales into insignificance compared to eternal death, the eternal separation of the soul and body from God forever. Paul says this to another church. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. Eternal death. Physical, spiritual, and eternal death are sin's terrible but just reward. But now, the grace that was in eternity past has appeared and has rendered death ineffective, has put death out of commission. Death has lost its sting because Jesus appeared. And he died to deal with sin, and in dealing with sin, when he rose, he dealt with death. Now, those three types of de- death still exist, but they've been nullified. They've been rendered ineffective for those who've received the grace. Physical death is still our enemy, but it's not the end. For those that love Christ and are in, in his grace, we, when we die, it's like falling asleep and we awaken the arms of our Heavenly Father. Spiritual death, Well, we're no longer separated from God. That's what baptism's about. I've died and I've been raised to a new life and I now have Jesus as my friend and saviour and Lord. And his resurrection assures me that my sins have been paid for on the cross. And then eternal death. We once lived without hope and without a future, but now Paul says you're promised life and immortality. We can live forever. Do you know every single one of us was supposed to live forever? And you and I actually know that. We we sense it. our society knows it. We're pumping so much money into drugs to keep us alive for longer. Why? Because we don't think we should die. We shouldn't die. But sin came and death came, but now grace came and appeared in Christ and we can live forever and know God. Timothy, this should give you great confidence in your gospel. So, grace in eternity past, grace that appeared in Jesus, now saved or graced through the gospel. Do you see the end of verse 10 there? It has brought life and immortality to light through through the gospel, the preaching of the message or the passing on of the message of Jesus that this gospel, this has a power and a grandeur and a greatness to save people from physical, spiritual and eternal death the gospel that you once received Timothy, you'd grown up in a Jewish home and then you heard about Christ crucified and you were saved and you had an assurance of your sins being forgiven and of eternal life through the gospel Timothy, do you remember its power to save you? Do you believe it? Don't be ashamed of it. Suffer for it. There's nothing greater in our world. No other religion or worldview has an answer to sin and death. They don't. Find me one. No other religion or worldview has an answer to this huge fear we have of death. Jesus is the answer. He's the only one, the only religion or worldview where God enters in to represent us to deal with our sin, and the only one who rises again from the, from the dead. There's no other saviour like him. Timothy, don't be ashamed. You have salvation because you believe the message that was preached. And so Paul finishes that famous verse, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace in eternity past gives us assurance. Grace revealed in the appearing of Jesus gives us confidence. Grace through the preaching of the gospel by which we were saved gives us conviction. Paul goes on to two more stages. Grace that calls us to a holy life. Verse 9. He saved us and called us to a holy life. God doesn't just save us and leave us. He calls us. And his calling isn't to a vocational an area. Where should I live and what should I do? His calling is to holiness. You see that? People get confused these days. What's God calling me to? Well, he's calling you to holiness. That's what he's calling you to. So what does holiness mean? Well, it means all the bad habits and bad attitudes and the ways of thinking and acting that don't honor him. He's calling you away from that. In fact, holiness has this idea of separation. We're being set apart by God, set apart from the ways of the world and set apart to serve him. We're not living futile lives, tossed to and fro by popular opinion and the latest fad. We've been called out of that into holiness. We're not just following the world's. We're no longer enslaved to people's opinions or climbing the career ladder or earning as much money as we can. We've been called to holiness. That's no longer our calling. It's more fulfilling, more fruitful, more joyful. Oh, I just want a nice, comfortable life. and you know, I We're called for something far greater than all that. We have a purpose, Timothy. You have a calling to holiness. And then finally... Grace that guarantees eternal life, that gives us hope. We've already talked about this, this grace that started in eternity past, that had shadows in the Old Testament, was revealed when light shone in Jesus, the darkness was over, he defeated death, it came to us in the gospel, we were saved, calls us to a holy life. It ends in eternity. Eternity past to eternity future, immortality. In the next chapter, when talking about his own ministry and his own suffering, Paul's going to say, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, listen to this, with eternal glory. Our gospel contains eternal glory. All the sufferings, all the moments when you were cut out from friendship groups because of what you believed, all the moments where you know you just life was awkward because you were a Christian. And there'll be lots of those moments. All the pain, the heartaches I've got to make this decision if I follow Jesus. That's going to cost me in this world. Paul, Paul says, yeah, but it's going to be swallowed up in eternal glory. Eternal glory. Not the temple glory of Dublin winning five in a row if they finally get their hat together. Or Shane Lowry winning the Open. I mean, what glory he received. Or Liverpool winning the Champions League. Or Ben Stokes pulling off one of the greatest innings in cricket. They are glorious, but they are not eternal glory. They are passing glory. For the Christian, however insignificant and cut off in this life you feel, there's eternal glory. Timothy, do you know it? Have you forgotten it? This will make you hopeful. So the five stages of salvation, given in eternity past in Christ Jesus, that gives us assurance. Revealed in the appearing of Jesus, who destroyed death, that gives us confidence. They came to us through the preaching of the gospel. That's what gave us conviction. That calls us to a holy life. That gives us purpose. That guarantees eternal life. That gives us hope. Conviction in this gospel. But there's one more point that I've missed out. Did you see it in verse 9 and 10? So do not be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony about our Lord or me as prisoner. Rather, joining me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, he saved us and called us to a holy life. This is the bit that I missed. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Timothy, this is the great news that will make you courageous. It's not about you. It's not anything you've done. So you can get over yourself and just trust that I'm doing something. It sort of frees you. It's not on me. No, it's not on you. It's nothing to do with what you are. God's doing something and you join in. It takes the weight off. Paradoxically, when you realize that it's not about you, courage emerges. One of my better moments at university was when I was I started to disciple three uh, first-year students. I was a second-year student. Once a week in a lunch break, and we read verse by verse through the letter of 2 Timothy. And one of the students was a guy named Levi, who had joined the Ultimate Frisbee team that I was a part of. Matthew mentioned that, yes, I played Ultimate Frisbee. And uh, don't laugh. And, um, I w- and he was figuring out whether he wanted to live the holy life that God had called him to. Let's put it like that. He was trying to go, I'm at university, there's drinks, there's good, you know. And all that carry on. Do I want to live a holy life? And he was really teetering. And he'd been raised in a Christian home. And uh, 17 years ago, I remember, we went through 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 9. Now, believe it or not, Levi subsequently became a missionary to Japan and written a book called Ultimate Grace. And uh, he's now you know, fluent in Japanese and is, is back at home at the moment, but he's, he's off in Japan being, trying to share the gospel there. And he recalls, In this, And he sent me this a few months ago. He recalls the moment we read these verses in this book. And he's talking about how he's not sure where where he's going to live as a Christian. He says, but something was missing. I couldn't say no to people. This became a problem when I made it to high school and all my friends wanted to go out drinking, clubbing and generally partying. I also lacked love. I was known as the nice guy in my group of friends, but really all my plans revolved around me. I wanted to get a good degree so I could get a good job. So I could get a nice house with a nice car and hopefully find a nice girl to marry and raise a nice family. I'd enjoy a nice long retirement and then go to heaven. As far as plans go, it seems pretty watertight to me. We then started reading the Bible with these two other guys. And he recounts that starting off. And he says, to be honest, the first couple of weeks were a bit boring. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Learning about Timothy's mum and grandma didn't particularly grab my attention. But then we reach 2 Timothy 1 7, where Paul writes that the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I was hooked. This is what I was missing. I needed this spirit. But what did I have to do to get it? I think it was the fourth or maybe fifth time meeting when we got to verse 9. I had of course heard about and sung about God's grace. But until now, it had, it had been something vague and undefined. I hadn't thought deeply about what it was. I didn't know you could or should think deeply about something like grace. But Steve pointed me to the end of the verse. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. If this is true, what does it mean for you? I'd always assumed that my relationship with God was, was partly based on what I did. After all, that's how my other relationships worked. If I got good grades, my teachers would praise me. If I made a funny joke, my friends would like me. Sure, I knew my parents loved me unconditionally, but, well, they had to, didn't they? How confident I felt of God's love for me at any time depended on how much I felt I would pleased him in the previous hours or days. I guess up to this point, then, grace had been kind of like the continue screen in computer games. I would go on my own strength eventually, or sometimes not so eventually, mess up, and then push the grace button to, to reset my standing with God back to zero. It kept me confident enough that I'd probably go to heaven if I were to actually die that day, but it was only after I'd built up enough points doing good deeds or general Christian stuff that I felt acceptable enough to approach God with anything like a degree of confidence. I once heard a sermon say that God's grace is like a coin that you put into a vending machine. Sometimes you have to give the machine a shake for the coin to drop properly. I read the verse again to Timothy, took a sip of coffee, and read it once more. My eyes stopped at the final five words before the beginning of time. I felt my heart shake a little. If this grace was given to us before the beginning of time, then it can't have anything to do with what we've done. We don't earn it at all. It's 100% totally free. I looked up. Steve was smiling. And his life changed. And the next chapter, the cost of discipleship. He said he was going to count the cost for Jesus at university. He stopped getting drunk. He started wanting to tell his friends and invite them to church. He's now... (laughs) He's now passing on He's picked up the baton in Japan. He's learned a language to pass this message on with. Has your heart been shaken like Levi's by grace? Convicted? He he just became courageous overnight. I mean, you know, over the weeks, I should say. What Paul wanted to happen to Timothy happened to my friend Levi. Has it happened to you? Has God's grace gripped you? eternity past appeared in Jesus came through the preaching of the gospel called to a holy life guaranteed an eternal life as soon as it grips you you'll drive out all fear there will be a cost but you'll go yeah I want to count that cost because I'm convinced so god's calling cowards by reminding us that it's to be re- reminding us to be reliant on the holy spirit convicting us with this gospel of grace and thirdly he wants us to make aware make us aware of the cost Remember my friend at a university was offended by the gospel. It's exclusivity. Only in Jesus is there salvation in no other way. And she couldn't stand that. We are sinners needing salvation and Jesus provides that. She didn't like that message. And it's always the exclusivity of Jesus that offends people. People don't mind if Jesus gives them hope and joy and love and all those things which he does. But as soon as you say only Jesus gives those things, then people start to get annoyed with you. Exclusivity offends people. And yet there's so many examples of how this works. Do you remember those Thai footballers who were stuck in a cave a few years ago? And someone knew the way to the cave and found them. And they put out a thin line, and, and there's diagrams on the internet, and they put down a thin line to where they were trapped to the place of salvation. There was only one route. There was no other way. If you wanted to be saved, you had to trust the people that told you the way of salvation. This route, follow this line, no other way. We will help you, but you have to follow this way and you'll be saved. And we're doing the same. We're telling people a way to salvation. People might say, you're narrow, you're exclusive, you should be broader-minded. Well, okay, there's other caves you can go down, but they don't lead you out. You could not follow the line and you'll end up in another cave. Or you can follow the line and be led to salvation. Salvation. We've escaped the dark cave of sin and death through Jesus. And now we're called to lay down a line and tell people the way out. Timothy, he says it in, in verses 13 and 14. You know, you've know, you now got to guard this good deposit. You've got to pass it on. You've got to, you've got to you know, stay faithful to it. And you're going to suffer if you do. And Paul's really clear with Timothy. You're going to suffer. Don't be ashamed of it. And so in verses 15 to 18, he gives two examples he in verse 15 he talks about desertion and, and, and desertion, and in verse 16 to 18 he talks about devotion. In other words, here are two people, Timothy, that you know, and everyone in the church knows, that's why he names them. Some have counted, one has counted the cost, and two have not counted the cost. Timothy, which one are you going to join? Are you going to be with uh, with Philegius and Homogenes and a load of others in Asia that deserted me? Isn't that an appropriate warning for our day over the last two or three years? There's been a string of high Christ, you know, high-profile Christian leaders falling away. It was happening back then. But in contrast to Phrygelus and Homogenes who have wandered away, there's Ones Sephorus, who searched hard for Paul and found him in that dark, dingy prison in Rome and was not ashamed of his chained and refreshed him. He willingly counted the cost. Paul says to Timothy, there's two paths here. And I want to tell you about what this path looks like philegious and homogenes. You know what it looks like because you've seen their lifestyle. And I want to tell you about Onesophores and that way of Which way are you going to choose, Timothy? Paul, like Jesus, wants people to be very clear about it, what it means to follow Jesus and, and, and take on the baton. Do you remember Luke 14? Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Jesus is telling people, it's fine to be on a spiritual journey. It's fine to be on a spiritual journey. It's fine to be working out who you are, who God is, what the world's about. But at some point on that spiritual journey, you have to face Jesus. And you have to go, will I come to Jesus to be saved? Because there's no other way. And will I follow Jesus wherever he calls me into holiness? At some point, everyone has to answer those questions, and we repeatedly do. And Jesus says, don't start making a tower if you're not aware of what it's going to cost you to finish. And so Paul's saying, Timothy... Don't go down this route until you're fully aware of the suffering that's going to come. And from tradition, we know that Timothy counted the cost. And so will we. So if you want to grow, encourage in the gospel, God is calling all cowards. And he's saying it's about the Holy Spirit, it's about your own conviction of the gospel of grace, and it's being ready to count that cost. So a few questions before we sing. For those of you with great spiritual heritage like Timothy and like me, the question is even more important because you can just assume you're a Christian, so you're okay, but you've never counted the cost and worked out the cowardice in your heart like I hadn't. So there's a moment here to go, no, I know I've got all this, I know I do things in Christian union and in church, and I've come from this background. No, no, no. Are you willing to count the cost for Jesus now? And if you're from a Christian home, it's more likely that you're assuming you are without actually answering the question. Take a moment. Think hard. There's a tower to be built. Are you going to build it? Do you know what it takes to finish it? For those of you here that are investigating Jesus, we are so delighted you're here. We, just, we couldn't be more chuffed that you're here. And we hope you feel at home, and we just want to love you and care for you. But as I said, at some point in your journey, you've got to face Jesus and say, will I accept you as the only way of salvation? and through repentance and faith give your life to him? And will I accept that wherever you lead me into holiness, I will follow? And I urge you today, put yourself in this amazing story that started in eternity past, that's going to go on to eternity future. You can be woven in through the preaching of the gospel you've heard today, that in Jesus death has been defeated and your sins have been forgiven. Hallelujah. Enter. Make the choice. Thirdly, for us as a church... This is part one of our vision series, who we are, what we're about. Front and centre to Christ City Church, we say we want to make a spiritual difference for Christ in Dublin. What does that mean? It means we want to pass on the message that salvation is in Jesus. And we want to do lots of other things as a church, but that's front and centre. That's really, that's, you know, that's what we're about. And so I want to call us again to think through the intro course, to think through your own friends and family, to think about taking one of these home. And even if they don't come, that you spent time writing some names of people you could invite on the back and just praying for them again. Lord, give me that courage and Holy Spirit, what I rely on you. And if I believe this message, I'll pass it on. And I'm willing to count the cost. And if they don't like that, you know, take it with you this week. Put it in your Bible. Write some names on it every day. Well, not every day. Write some names and pray for them. And then think about inviting them for the 30th of September. We're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for Paul. What a, what, a, what a man who uh, was a, a murderer and a, someone that hated you and hated your people and you, you, you wove him into the story of grace and he became someone that counted the cost and here he is on his deathbed willing to spend all his devotion and energy not you know, full of, oh, I'm about to die, but full of, Timothy, take this message and pass it on. And I pray, Lord, now as a church, that we'd respond however your Holy Spirit has convicted us. For those that need a fresh reminder of a reliance on the Spirit as they go into the new term, that, Holy Spirit, you'd fan into flames that courage and they'd be reminded of that gift of of power and of love and of self-discipline. For those of us, Lord, that need to remember our own salvation and be caught up in the wonder of it, the death has been defeated, and sin has been dealt with. Our oh Lord, it would convict us afresh. And for those of us that have, ah, do I want to live this life? Do I want to be called to holiness? Do I want to have one foot in, one foot out? Lord, that you'd, you'd help us to count the cost, and it's tough. And we need one another. We need a spiritual family. We would never do it on our own. And I pray we'd be that family here. Uh, so we pray these things in Your name. Amen.